Welcome to episode 27 by Fika with Bryce. In this episode, I'll meet the innovation billionaire Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square, together with Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of Twitter. We'll hear the amazing life journey Jim has had so far from creating Square, becoming a billionaire, how innovation is fostered, and we'll learn how you can foster innovation to your life, work, and use it to your advantage. We speak about his new book, The Innovation Stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time, and how a small team can beat a giant like Amazon. This is Jim's story. Let's go. Welcome to Fika with Rice. I'm so excited to have you on the show. You have a mega impressive career as an entrepreneur behind you, having co-founded Square alongside Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of Twitter, a billion dollar business. It's truly an honor. I wanted to start this episode with some rapid fire questions. It has become a tradition here uh, at Fika with Rice and our guests love it. So see it as an appetizer to this Fika. Um, it goes yes. like <laughs> it goes like this. I'll make a statement and then you'll finish the sentence. Does that make sense? Okay. Sure. Yeah. If I was 20 years old today, I would do wear more sunscreen. I'd probably start the company I started. I haven't changed that much in 30 years. The biggest mistake I made when I was in college was not understanding what I should be studying. I probably, I, I studied engineering and economics, and I think that was a great combination for me, but I really didn't appreciate how important those subjects were until later, engineering especially. I would have, I would have done more project-based learning. Do you think that's a maturity thing? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never been mature, so I don't know. <laughs> I love that. Okay. When I grew up, my biggest dream was? Probably flying airplanes. I always wanted to fly an airplane. Oh, that's and, cool. Uh, now I fly airplanes. So that's pretty cool. Honestly, you do that? I'm a commercial pilot. Yes, I'm, a, oh. I'm, a, I'm allowed to carry passengers for money. That's really cool. That's super cool, dude. Okay. The most common mistake entrepreneurs make is? Thinking they're entrepreneurs. The word that I use, when I say the word entrepreneur, I, I'm using an archaic definition, uh, which is somebody who's doing something new as opposed to starting a new business, but a business that has been started before. So like a co coffee shop, you know, we've had coffee shops forever. Um, if you start a new coffee shop, you're an entrepreneur, but you're not doing something new. So there's this difference between somebody who gets to copy a playbook that's been written by others and somebody who has to invent their own playbook. The best advice I received from my parents when I was young was... Very interesting. I never received any advice when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. My father, who was sort of my gold standard in genius, uh, never gave any advice. He didn't sit there and say, do this or don't do this. He just let me go. He just let me do the stuff that I was going to do. And if I'd ask him, he'd you know, try to give me an answer, but no advice. It, it, it's amazing because I see I'm, I'm a parent now and I try to tell my kids, oh, here, look at this. My dad never did that. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Was your mother the same? She'd tell me stuff, but she usually she'd just point out the stuff I did wrong. Oh, know, okay. Don't I do see. that. Like, don't do that again, usually. Oh, well, that didn't work, oh. you know. So they were they were not saying, okay, you should be studying this or you should consider to, to go into this or... No. I mean, uh, you know, my father was an engineer and he was the dean of the engineering school at Washington U in St. Louis. And so there was a sort of an implied path that it was probably good to know how to make things. And, you know, learning physics and math was good. I remember once when I was in college, I was not going to take some really high level physics class. And my father said, an educated man knows physics. And that's all he said. Okay, wow. But I, I, and so I, you know, switched into the class, but I, he never gave advice. Very interesting. Yes. I, I'm, I'm very shocked and impressed at the same time. Yeah. Well, it was funny. I didn't even realize it until I was trying to write the eulogy at his funeral. Okay. And I was thinking of, you know, advice that my father had given me throughout my life. And I realized there was none. Yeah. Like we had this very close relationship, but like he never told me what to do. And you turned out really great. Oh. The biggest conception about being wealthy is that you're also smart. I think these days, so I never planned to be wealthy. I planned to be comfortable and now I'm way too comfortable. It's weird. Ann and I are giving all the money away. 
So our plan is to, to give it away, not to give it to our kids. And we're trying to give it away in an efficient manner. And I don't want to be one of these rich guys who complains about having money. But honestly, in my life, it's been not so great because a lot of the things that I used to like to do, I don't get to do anymore, which is just sort of have my ideas beaten up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to like doing stuff that's kind of crazy. And then people tell me it's crazy. And these days, people don't tell me it's crazy. Even when they think that, they don't say it. Okay. So they I'm in this very pedestal, weird world. Basically. Yeah, they're, they're, they don't want to criticize me because I'm afraid I'll, you know, fire them or take away my account or, I, you know, I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll leave with a big bag of cash. And so I don't get the feedback that I was used to getting. So it's very difficult for me to do the stuff that I like to do, which is start new things, you know, try stuff that hasn't been built. May I ask, I just became a father to a seven week old baby daughter, Jim. Um, very exciting. Yes. Um, what's the thought process between you and Anna, like giving the money away? Was that something that you guys had decided before? Or why is that something that people are doing now, which people didn't do before very, very, very often? And this is a new concept in Asia, by the way, as well, among wealthier people. I don't know how new a concept it is, but the problem is if you do it, you don't build a legacy. So if you keep it in the family and your family gets some sort of name, like you're the Rockefeller, you know, kid or the great, great, great grandkid, then your name becomes associated with money. And there's okay. some names that are in my town. I'm, I'm from St. Louis uh, where, you know, it's clear if you have that last name that you're rich. That happens over multiple generations. But if you actually look at the people who are rich that way, who have inherited mm -hmm. money, they become more conservative. They become sort of stewards of the money as opposed to their own agents. And I'm a steward of my money right now. I can do really stupid things with my money. As a matter of fact, I've done really stupid things with my money and I plan to do more. And that's my right because I earned it. Yes. So let's say I give a bunch of money to my kid. Yes. And my kid decides that she wants to be an entrepreneur. She wants to, she wants to do something that hasn't been done. And she's going to have to put some money in. Well, she might not do that because it's not really her money. Like she didn't earn it. Mm -hmm. And if you earn it, you can blow it. But if you didn't earn it, you're sort of responsible for acting responsibly. And it makes you conservative. And, and over generations, it, it, it actually tends to get worse. So by the time, you know, you've inherited your grandfather's money, now you, are, you, you don't want to be one of the six grandchildren. You don't want to be the, the one who screws it up, right? Yes. So you're not going to hit a home run. You're only going to try to get on first base. Like you're I never going to swing for the fence. You're never going to do the things that could be uh, damaging. And, and frankly, a lot of the stuff doesn't take money to begin with. So like if, let's say one of my kids come to me and says, Hey dad, you teach me how to be rich. Absolutely. I can give you a formula for that. Like I can tell you if you want to make, you know, a couple hundred million bucks, show you how that's done. And if my kid wants to do that and walk that path, fine. Then if you earn, you know, whatever pile of money you want to earn, then you're actually rich because not only did you earn it yourself, but you have the, you have the agency that comes with actually earning it. So if my kid wants to be wealthy, then he or she, you know, whichever one it is, should make that choice and then really be rich, which is to have earned it yourself, because then you can do whatever you want. So what I'm hearing, Jim, is giving the money away to your children, if you have a big amount, limits their creativity, you would say, limit their, their growth, limit their in life. And that's something well, that you, you would wish to prevent. Yeah, well, it limits their growth, probably, but mm -hmm. it also limits their wealth. All right. And you say, okay, yes, Wait a second, I see you that. Give a bunch of money. Like, no, no, no. Just having a bunch of money doesn't make you wealthy. Like, right now, I'm, I live very modestly. That's because I don't have the ego to go along with the money. I, I just never developed that type of ego. I thought I had it. I kind of thought I would buy more stuff, but it turns out now that I can afford it, I don't. And I didn't know that about myself. But turns out most of my stuff's pretty cheap or home built or, you know, I, you know, got a nice house, but I mean, two car garage, you know, who cares? Yes. You're actually taking something away from a person who wants money by giving them money. 
They have That's an interesting statement. When we sold Square, the first thing I did was... We didn't sell Square. We IPO'd it. Okay, so when you exited then? I didn't exit. I still hold a lot of my stock. Now, I, I sold some um, so I could give some money to the university. Yes. And so I could make my, my wife comfortable. Because she was like, we have all this money in Square. Let's take some out. So I did that to make her comfortable. And that was it. Okay, I see. Oh, and I gave some to Wash U. I gave some to my university. Okay. That's yeah, it. I saw that on your Wikipedia page. Okay, uh, my biggest hobby is... Glass blowing. And it used to okay, be a profession. I, yeah, I used to do glass uh, for a living, and now I do it for fun. Okay, that's cool. There's a lot of big um, glass, I don't know what it's called in, in English, but basically companies that have people blowing glass in Sweden. It's a big deal. Yeah. In the area where no, I'm coming Costa from. Boda. Well, as a matter of exactly, fact. Exactly. Um, Costa Buda, yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you know SMSA? Yes, I've heard of them. I don't own SMSA, any of them, but I heard of them, yes. We buy from SMSA. And then we are the US importers for Glasma, which okay. is a Swedish glass batch. So, Glasma, if the crystal that Costa Boda uses, uses is glasma and we import that for the whole united states so if you buy swedish studio glass you buy it from me that's really cool that's very cool yes we have the whole we have the whole thing and and a new line of colors coming out awesome colors i can't wait to get these things out there where does yeah. this passion come from i mean it's really random i've never uh, in my I'm, life met someone who, who who has a passion for this you know i'm 35 so well i have done it since I was in college. I loved taking glass when I was a student in Washington U and I did it for a living afterwards. And it's where I invented Square. I was in the glass studio when I came up with the idea. It's been a big part of my life. Okay. My biggest fear is? Snakes. No. Okay. Um, no, it's not snakes. Uh, look, I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of flying, but I'm a pilot. <laughs> I'm afraid of failure, but I start a bunch of stuff that fails. I'm, you know, afraid of public speaking, but I do that professionally now. You know, I'm claustrophobic, but that doesn't, you know, I got That's so you. many fears. I, I, I don't, ha I don't brave, have like a you. number one. You're very no, brave. I'm not. I, yeah. No, uh, here's, here's the thing about, okay, I'll answer your question. My biggest fear is not holding me back. Okay. Whatever my biggest fear is, which I don't know, is not, not the thing that I'm using to not take action. I see. Okay. So, let me explain this. I fly airplanes and I'm afraid of small airplanes. I've learned that all the stuff that I'm afraid of doesn't stop me from acting. So even if I'm in a situation where I'm afraid, which happens frequently. Yes. I've learned that I can keep, I'm, I'm almost used to being working, working when I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Gosh, there's so many fears. It's a great uh, ability. It's interesting. Like when they teach, when you learn to fly an airplane, they teach you to not freeze at the controls. So you're taught to fly the airplane. Like okay, if things yes. are going wrong and there's, you got an engine on fire or you're, you know, you're lost in weather or you're running out of fuel or there's ice on the wings or, you know, there's smoke in the cockpit, like fly the plane. Don't stop flying. Yes. Okay, you can deal with the problem. And every year I go through training where you go in a simulator and they make one of the engines explode and then they, you know, try to steer you into a mountain. And you, your job is to keep flying the airplane. Don't stop flying. It's do good think, training. Yeah. Do you think that has helped you be an entrepreneur in life? I would say yes, except I was an entrepreneur way before I was a pilot. Like I was used to doing things in a state of fear even though I was sort of paralyzed. Uh, well, I wasn't paralyzed. I was, I was afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, fear is different for paralysis. It's funny. Like there's, I used to have this bicycle for, you know, bicycle built for two. And I put friends in the front because it's fun to ride a bike, you know, with somebody else providing the power in the back. Yes. And I had one friend who was so afraid with the bicycle that she stopped steering. Okay. So she just let go of the handle and then we crashed and I was like, that's weird because like, even if you're afraid, you sh you'd think that people would keep riding a bicycle, but some people just give up and let go of the handle and crash. Yeah. But hopefully you don't do that if you're actually in a life or death situation. So yes, of course. So before this conversation, Jim, I, I was on Cora 
And I found a note that you wrote about personal energy score and how you manage time. Oh. It's the only commodity we can buy. I found that extremely interesting. Can you tell the audience that don't know about that, what, what that's all about? My one and only Quora post. Wow. That was like 10 years ago, but yes. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a very simple concept. And that is you wake up every morning with a certain amount of energy, whatever your number is, five, six, 10, the scale doesn't matter, but let's say it's zero to 10. Okay. Zero means you're out. 10 means you're as full as you can be. And let's say you wake up every morning with four units because you got some sleep. Uh, but if you got a bad night's sleep, maybe you only get three units of energy whatever your score is, during the day, certain things are going to build you up and other things are going to consume energy. And you just try to manage that score. So for instance, what I noticed this morning, because I had a problem with Expedia, they, I was traveling somewhere and they canceled okay. the flight and Expedia won't give me a refund because they say it's the airline's fault, but then I called Lufthansa and Lufthansa won't give me a refund because they say, well, you got to get the refund from Expedia. So I've been going back and forth between these two companies. You know like what? My wife, now. my wife had the same problem with Expedia a few years ago. Expedia is terrible. I'll never use it again. And I hope your listeners won't either. They, <laughs> they steal your money and they don't reply. And then when you ask them, they say, well, it's the airline's fault. And then they keep yeah, your money. Exactly. It's, and it's very frustrating, but here's the thing. I spent an hour and a half on that this morning okay. trying to get my money back. And during that hour and a half, I lost probably three units of energy. Okay. Like by the time, like it was, it was the equivalent of me not having had a good night's sleep. It was okay, a really yes. stupid investment. If you consider the fact that the amount of money that I was arguing about was really not worth me having a day where I'm just been, where I've just been depleted. Um, but the good news is uh, I, I figured it out before I hit zero. And so then I went out and did a bunch of other stuff that sort of builds my energy up. And so, you know, I listened to some good music. Uh, I played with my kid. Um, you know, I played the piano. Uh, I took, I, I called a couple of friends who were like really funny and they were like, ah, you know, let me tell you about this, you know, and, and I got my energy score back up. So then what I had to deal, I had a pretty difficult meeting uh, this afternoon. Like when I went into that meeting, I was charged up enough that I could handle it. So Think of it like a battery. Like we all have batteries in our lives yes. now. We're constantly charging, you know, this stuff, this has to be charged and my car has to be charged. And you know, now my home has to be charged. I've got this Tesla battery on my home. Like my home could be low on power. Just keep your batteries full. This is the thing. Recognize that your activities during the day add or subtract and yes. don't go into a difficult situation with a battery light flashing because you're going to fail. So go recharge and then deal with it. But these people who just push themselves down to zero and then pass zero, all they're doing is being martyrs. They're not, they're yes. not succeeding. They fail. So I manage my personal energy all the time. And it's a good trick. It's a good trick. And I'm, I will not call Expedia or use them again. I love this. And the reason why I asked about it is because I think a lot of people um, can benefit from this. It's very similar to something that Naval Ravikant was saying, where I think he said something in the lines that okay, how, how much am I worth per hour? And okay, I'm going to call Expedia. How much can I get back on that? And if it's below my, my annual or my hourly wage, I shouldn't be spending time on that. Yeah. So I once calculated how much interest I earn passively per minute and I shouldn't do anything. Like it's just nothing is worth it. Like it's, How does that it's, make it's you appalling. feel? How does that it's make terrible. you feel? Well, I have to ignore it. Honestly, I have to ignore yeah. it now because if I sit there and do the math, it's almost pointless for me to try to do anything. So what's happened since, since I did that terrible exercise is two things. One, I sort of rationalized my activity by saying, well, I have to set an example for a couple of kids who aren't going to you know, end up with this pile of money. So they better see what work looks like and they better see me fighting for a refund for, a, you know, it, it's a coach ticket. You know, yes. refund on a coach ticket, probably one of the reasons they're not, they're not talking to me, but you know, I, I'm trying to set an example for the kids. Maybe that's rationalizing. Uh, part of it is just that those are my habits and I'm used to doing it that way. And I, I've never thought of myself as having the amount of money that I now have. So, I, and I don't, cause it's just overwhelming and I ignore it. 
I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody feels sorry for you. You know, it's like, oh, poor guy. Yeah, no, like, I think it's, I don't know. I, I, think I sound I'm, like the world's biggest jerk when I say that. Because I know, like, I just want people to know, like, I grew up struggling. I supported myself as an artist, which was not a very lavish style of living. Like, yes. I have friends that sleep in their car. Like, I have friends who are at home, you know, not quite homeless, but like, would be without a few things and uh you know friends in prison like the whole nine yards so like i know what that's like i wasn't prepared for it i got rich too late i love that you're being honest about it though i think two little people are speaking about it you know i know there was Wait. one of these this tech billionaires in sweden that became completely depressed and and um and moved abroad after becoming very very wealthy but yeah i think it's spoken yeah, actually, too little about my wife and i i know who it is My wife and I looked at his apartment in Stockholm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I know who it is. I don't want to out the guy, but I know who it is. And I, I almost bought his place because my wife is Swedish. Okay, I didn't know that, Jim. Oh yeah. Okay, oh, now yeah. we really now I really want to meet Anna to to find out where she's from and she's the interesting Swedish. One. I'm I'm yeah yeah. So that's how I know what Fika meant. Let's start about with your book. You wrote a book, The Innovation Stack. Why? Why do you want to tell your story? Well, it's not my story. Uh, I, I'm one example, um, but it's a story about how a small company can survive and dominate a, an industry. And I discovered this because Square got attacked by Amazon when we were a startup and we survived. And Amazon almost always, well, actually always when we were doing it, uh, wins when they attack a startup. When, it, when Amazon copies your product, undercuts your price and ad, adds the Amazon brand name to their thing, which is the equivalent of your thing, they win. That's 100% true. In our case, we won, Square won. And I couldn't answer the question, why did we win? And actually I was in Barcelona. I was in Spain when the inspiration happened. I, I, I think it was Barcelona. I, I know it's really insulting to confuse Barcelona and Madrid but I don't remember which city I was in. Anyway, I was in one of the Spanish castles. I was in a okay. castle in Spain. And I was looking at the original letters of Christopher Columbus, which this family had funded Columbus's voyage. I had been trying to figure out how to answer my question because I was trying to look, I was trying to look for other companies like Square that had been attacked when they were tiny and survived. And I couldn't find any examples. It was very, it was like trying to find one of those you know, sort of subatomic particles. It, it just, I didn't find it. I was sitting there in the library looking at the letters of Christopher Columbus. And I was like, oh my God, he had the toughest pitch in the world, right? He's basically saying, I'm going to sail this way where no ship has ever returned and give me money and men who'll die if I'm wrong, right? Yes. And he, and he, and he made his voyage, but like, think about that pitch, right? How did he have to like, imagine the faith? And then I realized, The solution to my problem was to look back in history. And so I looked back in history and I found all these examples of companies that started off as these tiny little things you could ignore. And then they were attacked and you think, oh, well, they're certainly going to die. But it was turns out they all did this one thing. They all built this thing called an innovation stack. It's, it's a term I sort of coined, but I needed a way to describe what the messy process of invention looks like. And 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 if you look at it, there's this really clean pattern that's repeated throughout time. And, and so the way the book came to be, because all my research was historic, I couldn't talk to any of the people who were there. They were all dead, except for yes. one guy, Herb Kelleher. He was the founder of Southwest Airlines, legendary entrepreneur. And he was still alive. And I flew down to Herb and I showed him all my research. And I said, look, I started a payment company. You started an airline, but I think we did the same thing. And- What did he say? You know, after he said, yes. He said, he said, I hadn't thought about it this way, but you're right. How are you going to share this with the world? Basically his message to me. How are you going, how are you going to tell this story? How are you going to just not keep this for yourself? And I was like, oh crap. It was like getting a homework assignment from God. Because Herb, Herb, Herb was this legendary figure. Of course. And, and I was like, I was like, oh crap. So, so that's how I wrote the book. Like I was like, I got a homework assignment from this guy. And then I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. I wrote it eight times before I thought it was good enough to publish. And I'll save you the 15 bucks if your listeners don't want to, you know, shout and read it. And the basic 
message of the innovation stack is that there is this line between what humanity knows and the stuff that we don't know. And a lot of stuff is on this other side, the other side of the line. It's stuff we haven't done yet. We haven't invented it yet. You can spend and probably will spend and probably should spend your entire life on the side of the line where everything is known, where we know how to do stuff, where if you don't know, you can watch YouTube or you can hire an expert or you can go to a conference or you can read a book. You can figure out how to do this thing that others have also figured out how to do. And you can spend your whole life there. Start a company. Just, just start a company that's a company like somebody else's company. But if you dare to step across this line, then you're subject to a different set of rules. And if you don't understand those rules, it's even worse. And my mistakes, many, many of my mistakes as a sort of younger entrepreneur were because I didn't understand the difference between the set of rules on one side of the line and the set of the rules on the other side of the line. And by God, you better know it. And, you know, it was, it was comical because I would like, I'd have a problem in my company and I'd call up one of my friends with a, you know, successful company. I'd say, Hey, I'm having problems with this. I don't care what it is. Pick it up. Hiring. Okay. And he'd say, Oh, no problem, Jim. I've got it figured out. Do this. Da, da, da. And I'd go and I'd do it and it would blow up in my face. And so my conclusion was I must be an idiot. Like I must be so incompetent that I can't even when given a formula, implement the formula correctly. Turns out the formula works in his business because his business had a known market and there were competitors. There was a totally different set of math mm -hmm. that made that formula work in that space. But I was in this other space where that formula was comically inappropriate. And I was getting terrible results, which I should have gotten because I was doing the wrong thing. It turns out if I understood the math of my space, I could have done it differently. So, so I wrote this book basically because there are millions of people out there that I want to reach and with the following message, which is you're going to spend almost all your life and maybe all your life copying other people's ideas learning mm -hmm. what other people have learned and just doing what they've taught you to do a couple of times and only a couple of times in your life, you're going to come up against some problem that you want to solve that we haven't figured out how to fix yet. Humanity just has not solved that. We, we as a species have not done that one thing. And you're going to sit there at that moment and you're going to say, well, I'm not qualified. My whole life, I've been taught that I don't do things unless I'm qualified. So we talk about flying airplanes, like I'm a pilot. You know what I'm not? I'm not the first pilot. I was taught That's by right. a guy who was a much better pilot, and a guy who taught him, and a guy who taught him. Like There is a long line of learning going back to the very first pilot who was Orville Wright, who got in the plane and didn't know how to fly because he couldn't. Exactly. No human had flown. So it wasn't like he understood stall speeds or... Uh, you know, uh, critical angle of attack. I mean, maybe he understood some physics, but he didn't know how to do it. And there was nobody to teach him, but he still did it. And so my message to the world is, look, get my book, don't get my book, but get this idea, which is that a couple of times in your life, you're going to be presented with this line of what humanity knows. And if you step past that, understand two things. One, you're not qualified to step past it, but that no human is more qualified than you because you've run up against the edge of qualification. And I watch people, some really brilliant people who I think could do great things for the world, but they always quit when they get up to that edge. They, they, they get there and then they say, oh my God. I mean, I got you know, somebody who's got a master's degree from probably the best school in the world. Uh, second degree from another really, really, really good school. I mean, and when she comes up against a problem, she stops. Yeah. And my message to her and to all the readers is you don't have to stop. You're probably going to be pretty uncomfortable if you don't, but you don't have to stop. It's a very inspirational read, the book. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me, another thing that you wrote was, if I understood it correctly, is that you say in the book that copying is a great place to start, 
I mean, obviously it won't help you see big change, but it's a great way to start. And a lot of, of, of business people, they do that. And a lot of companies do that to be successful. I find that very controversial because Silicon Valley is supposed to be the place that is in innovative coming up with new things rather than creating copycats, which have been very successful in Asia, Europe. Look at uh, Zalando copying Sappos, for example making a very successful business uh, of copying a business model. Why is that? Well, it's cool to be innovative. And I hate things that are cool. I'm, I'm trying to make innovation not cool. <laughs> like if you read my book, what I tell you is you will be shunned. If, if you're really innovating, if you're really doing it right, you are not cool. And I'll tell you why. The cool person is admired. The cool person, everyone goes, oh, look at how cool that person is. Like that's what being cool is. You don't get that anytime during the journey. Like when you're doing the really significant stuff, they just think you're weird. They just think you're wrong, stupid, weird, idiotic. I mean, I was called all sorts of names. We were mocked. I mean, like it's, it's just, and I'm not complaining about it. That's just, that's the natural tendency of people who care about you trying to protect you. Okay. So if I like you, Friedrich, and I see you doing something that I think is dangerous, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, don't do it. Yes. Stop that. Come back here. Do this thing that you're good at. Stop, you know, trying to do this other thing. So being cool is, uh, is absolutely not part of it. And, and the problem with innovation is that it's been sold as this thing that's cool. I'm not a follower. I'm an innovator. I do things differently. Oh yeah, really? Let's let's. Oh, you got funded by Andreessen Horowitz. Well, there's nothing original about that, you know. Oh, you got uh, you know a tech team with uh, you know uh, you know multiracial you know twenty somethings on it. It is completely formulaic. Well, not completely, but it is it is just as formulaic in Silicon Valley as it is anywhere else. And there's a good reason for that. The formula works. But the formula does not necessarily create innovative companies. The formula creates high growth companies that copy each other's formula. Big difference. Okay, I'm following now. Very interesting. Okay, I see now. Jim, let's go back to beating Amazon, which I found so, so interesting. How were the strategic meetings, the late night talks with Jack and your team when you discussed like how you were, how you were going to overcome this big opponent in Amazon? Can you tell us what it was like behind the scenes? It was like the doctor coming out and telling you you had stage four pancreatic cancer. Like it was, it was a death sentence. It was, it was at the time. 100% the case that all previous companies who had found themselves in the position that we had found ourselves in were dead. Like that, that was what it was like. Okay. So now, now that I've set the mood, okay, yes, <laughs> let's talk about the conversation. So what do we do? Cause you want to do something, right? You don't want to just sit there. Exactly. What do we do? So we looked at all the stuff that we, needed to do. And we had this long list of things that were wrong with our product that we were fixing as quickly as we could. And we had this long list of things that were wrong with the company that we were fixing as quickly as we could. And then we had this big group of customers who were complaining about things and requesting things. And we were trying to get those uh, complaints and requests handled. And then there's Amazon who we didn't know what to do. Like we couldn't become as big as Amazon we couldn't get Amazon's financial resources. We couldn't get Amazon's brand name. We couldn't get their user. Like we couldn't do any of the stuff that they already did. So then the question was, well, what are we going to do to respond to them? And we looked at what they were doing and we thought, well, if we charge what they're charging, we'll actually lose money on every single transaction. So that's just a quick way of killing ourselves. So we didn't do anything. We did nothing, 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 nothing. We just kept doing what we were doing. I would say that we ignored them, except that wouldn't be a truthful statement because it wasn't that we were ignoring them. We were looking at them, recognizing that they did not change a thing that we were doing. And then they quit. It took them a year and a half to realize that they shouldn't be in credit card payments. And they gave incredible. up. Incredible. Yeah, incredible. 
you mentioned other examples in your book, such as IKEA, who competed and won against bigger companies. What would you say to entrepreneurs out there of smaller companies like myself today who are competing against bigger, more funded companies? This sounds really crazy, but you really need to know what you're competing with and which side of that line you're on. Okay. okay. And, 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 and so let, let, I'll give you advice for both sides. If you are competing in a space where there is a known solution, and it's just up to you to implement that known solution, to do what others have done before. Maybe you've got a SaaS company, maybe you've got a mobile company, maybe you're building a platform, maybe you're building a restaurant, I don't, whatever it is. If that is the case, then be a student of the formula that works. Look at the formulas that have worked, learn those formulas, learn how to implement them. And if you've come up with part of the formula that you don't understand, find somebody who understands it. They're out there. You can hire them. You can pay them. You can watch it on YouTube. You can figure it out. You can bet, you can buy the book. You can do all this stuff and figure that out. That's on one side of the line. If you were in the rare case of being in a business where you can't copy a known solution, so you're not allowed to copy. It's not that you're not allowed to copy. It's that there's nothing to copy. So now recognize that for what it is and okay. say, okay, this world is going to require a lot of invention and innovation. I'm going to have to try a lot of different things. Many of those things are going to fail. Mm -hmm. So I better be able to try those things quickly. I better be able to put a team together that's uh, you know here for the reasons that are consistent with that sort of behavior. Yes. And I, I need to live in this other sort of less safe, less predictable world. And I probably need to move pretty fast because I'm not going to survive too long. And if that's the company you're in, then there's a set of rules. And I talk about them in the innovation stack that are sort of appropriate in that world. And, and that would be, you know, my recommendation. So I don't care how big your company is. I care how many, you know, planks are in your innovation stack. I care how many people are potentially benefiting from your product or service, even though they don't know it exists yet. You know, I care about other stuff. The math changes. It's a very interesting way to see it, Jim. Very, very interesting way to see it. Um, I love because you come from an engineering background, you know. I come from a business background. So I like that perspective, especially when you're saying I look at the potential, like who, who, who doesn't know about your product yet? Yeah. And if you're building something new, the answer is nobody knows about your product. Like exactly. Absolutely exactly. nobody. What would you say are, for example, the three most common mistake entrepreneurs make when they compete against bigger competitors that, not, that are not often spoken about? So if you mean entrepreneurs as in people who run businesses. Yes, exactly. They in, probably in just aren't case. copying the right stuff. Okay. If, if you mean entrepreneur in its original meaning. So the interesting thing is the word entrepreneur originally meant a business person who was doing something weird. That was what Schumpeter meant when he coined the term 150 years ago. Like he was basically an economist who was trying to describe this thing, kind of like I was with the book, that hadn't been talked about. And so he realized that we needed a word. So he came up with the word entrepreneur. And that word then over the last century has ceased to have its original meaning. And it now means anyone who starts a business. But if you're competing against a bigger company, then look, there's a playbook for that. You can basically look at other companies who are small and have successfully competed against bigger companies and copy what they do. Like there's, you know, there's the incumbent advantages and there's the upstart advantage. And, you know, you get you get different advantages. So that, for me to just repeat that formula would put your listeners to sleep because they've heard it 100 times or they should yes. because that's a very, very well-known formula. The formula they probably haven't heard is you're a big comp, you're a little company competing against giant competitors, but with a completely differentiated product like Southwest Airlines was doing. And you say, well, wait a second, Southwest was just flying airplanes like United. Like why is Southwest Airlines any different than United? I mean, they're both flying, you know, big pieces of aluminum. They both have the same fuel prices. They land at the same airports. And, and my answer is, no, 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 they don't really do all that. There's a lot of stuff that Southwest Airlines did that was fundamentally different, even though in this commoditized business of air travel, we think everyone's the same. Well, it's not the same. And recognize that you can do things very, very differently. As long as you're doing from the right reasons, you can ignore the competition. So just ignore them. Don't even, I don't go to any payment conferences. 
you know, we didn't hire a bunch of experts from Visa and MasterCard. We just ignored it. We just said, okay, what are we going to do to build the thing that we think should exist? Mm -hmm. And we built it, handed it to our customers. And the customer's like, well, this is pretty good, but this would be really good. Okay, thank you. We'll do that. And then we looked at it and said, oh, well, if that's really good, then this would be great. So then we did that and boom, boom, boom. I love that. Uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs or, okay, a lot of business leaders, a lot of business owners today, I think they focus uh, a lot on the competition. I think it might have to do with that there's so much information out there today, given that we have the internet and social media and so on. So here's, here's, here's the thing, Frederick. Focusing on the competition is absolutely something you should do if you are in that type of market. Like mm -hmm. that's 100% appropriate behavior. I'm talking about getting yourself into a market where there effectively is no competition, but there's also no running water. You're I living see. in the wilderness. So, I mean, uh, I mean, the analogy I use in the book is uh, the ancient walled city. Okay. So, you know, in the old times, what they used to do is have a city. Well, the city was getting attacked and all sorts of stuff. So they built a wall around the city, sort of like put it in a giant fortress. The city wall protects the citizens, but it also traps the citizens. Okay. So the life of an entrepreneur is the life of somebody who's been kicked out of the city. But let's think about the person who stays in the city. They enjoy a lot of freedom. They, they enjoy a lot of safety. They enjoy a lot of, well, actually I said freedom. That's probably not the right word. They enjoy a lot of resources and access to stuff. But as far as freedom goes, that city comes with a bunch of raw, a bunch of laws and rules. And if you break them, the punishment going back in history is often being kicked out of the city. Like that's how they punish. They say, if you don't yes. pay, play with the rules here, we're just going to throw you over the wall. You get thrown over the wall. The first thing question is, are you going to die the first night? Right. Cause you got no place to sleep. You got no source of food. You may have injuries that you can't treat cause you got no, you know, healthcare. Like, but if you don't survive, I'm sorry, if you do survive, you have freedom. You have, you have the lack of rules. And the entrepreneurs get this very harsh environment, but they also get to do whatever the hell they want. Yes, and that's exactly. Cool. You don't have to copy the competition if you're an entrepreneur. You get to make it up. Yeah. So another thing, another thing from the book that I found quite interesting is that you write that one of the things that damages entrepreneurial firms is feedback failure. So I'm by default a quite positive guy, and you know I give a lot of gratitude to my towards my parents for that. But I have struggled to provide candid feedback to my colleagues and my employees over the years while I was building Absolute Internship. And for example. One day it might result in me saying to one of them that, hey, this is not working out. We need to let you go. So it's not helping me. It's not helping the colleague and it's not helping the organization. How do you provide kind and candid feedback in an entrepreneurial firm that is growing so fast? So kindness is something that I think is just a core human value. And you should always expect and receive kindness. We don't always get it, but I think it's sort of a good baseline to assume in anything. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I've fired people and in some cases they've thanked me later. I've fired people and in some cases they've hated me for 20 years. But in all cases, if you're honest about whether or not someone's a fit, you can have that conversation in a relatively sane way. Yes. Um, the, the problems of the entrepreneur, feedback failure being one of them, if you're building something that has not been built before, getting people to even notice it or understand it is very difficult. And you think, oh, no, no, shouldn't be that hard. Well, that's because you spent all this time with this product and you understand it. Of course, it makes sense to you. You've spent 50 hours thinking about it in the last three years before you quit your job, you know, you know, fantasizing about it. You understand the concept well, and you can't imagine that this poor guy who's seen your, you know, pitch for 30 seconds doesn't catch up. So he must be an idiot because he doesn't understand it. This is it's it's natural for humans to be unaware of the complexity that which with which we use things. I was watching a you have a little girl. Uh, I have a little girl too. I was watching with her the other day, a video of her standing up. 
just how hard it is for a baby to stand up. Yes. And if you think about it, like I stand up thoughtlessly and just stand up. You're literally learning to control like a hundred different muscles in order to stand properly. Like it's not just your legs and your hips, it's you're stabilizing your abdomen. You got to hold your head up and then you got exactly. to balance with your hands. You got to, you know, I mean, what's going on with your big toe? You know what? I don't think about my big toe. My big toe just does what it's supposed to do. But like when I was one, my big toe was a problem. I, I hadn't learned how to handle the toe yet. So don't be too quick to judge others and also be sympathetic with the fact that your product if it's new, is going to have this extra layer of problems. Now, if it's just an improved version of what the other guy is selling, well, then just say it's like this, only better. But if it's truly new, you got this, this whole new effort to get their attention. And then when you have their attention, try to explain something new, but you don't even get to use analogies for the existing stuff because your thing isn't the existing stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I understand. I think, I mean, in the case of Square, it was such a innovation that I understand that might have been very difficult to get feedback from customers and stakeholders because people didn't understand the concept, you know. Building a working prototype helps a lot. Like a physical thing that people can use is very helpful. Yes. Jim, um, just about your children, just by curiosity, how old are they? The one behind me is 11. Okay. Uh, the one you can't see who isn't home yet is four. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Which is the book that you have gifted the most besides your own one? If it's a business book, good to great. If it's a children's book, Fox and Socks. And if it's somewhere in uh, the middle, it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, very good. I saw your son, he gave the thumbs up about uh, his book. So very good. Where can people find you to learn more about you? Don't learn more about me. But if you want to learn about some of the ideas, uh, I would say jimmckelvey.com is a good pointer. And I only send you to a website because I don't use social media. So I, I tell people this, like if you follow me on social media, that's not me. That's a PR agency that I hired to just do this stuff that my publisher was like, well, you got to have a social account. And, and so I, I apologize for the fact that it's not really me, but I don't do social media. But if you want it to you know, sort of directly interact, I uh, post articles that I think are important and I write articles that I think are interesting. And uh, I share it all at jimmckelvey.com. Oh, and you can also download a free copy of uh, some of the innovation stack in its original cartoon format. So it was originally a graphic novel. It wasn't a business book. So you can see all the stuff except with pen and ink. Thank you, Jim. Just by curiosity. So first of all, why don't you use social media? And secondly, like really love that you're honest about you being that this is a PR firm handling your social media accounts. I don't use social media because I'm too competitive and I say too many funny things. I couldn't use social media the way I want, which is just to like blather around whatever I'm thinking. Um, Jack's told me to do it that way and just not worry about the impact, but like I, I crack too many jokes and I, my jokes <laughs> would get me in trouble or they'd hurt people. And it's just a whole nother thing. The other thing is I, I'm very competitive yes. and I don't think I would be able to re to resist saying something and then validating that people agreed with me. Like I would look for that validation. I would look for I that. See that that sort of uh like that i think would tear me apart and then i try harder the next time well i have to be more clever or i have to be more something and, and I, i'd be i'd be on this path to trying to be somebody who i'm not you know that plus i'm just flat out lazy it's a lot of work i don't need it, it. is a lot of work I mean, yeah I you know and i i i would be possibly obsessed and i think that would be bad so i'll put my energy into playing the piano or reading a book or something there's a story that i read that you used to offer a ride to entrepreneurs or, or business people who, who who flew into san Louis to give talks you would wait yes. for them to give their speeches you would be that creep or that that person waiting for that per, that person i wasn't a creep up. i was wearing a suit i had a nice car and i would offer them a ride to the airport nothing creepy about it so first of all why did you do it i wanted one-on-one -on -one time with the most successful people i could find 
Oh, well, and, how come? Well, this was pre-YouTube. This was pre-internet. This was back when you know you you could read books by people, but to actually get to talk and ask them questions because I could never find the answers in their books. You know, I'd read some guy's book and I was like, yeah, but I'm having this problem now. Granted, I was building stuff that hadn't been built, so I had this whole new weird set of problems. But I was like, I, I really wanted to ask these people, like, how do you handle the situation that I'm in? And um, so I would find that they were speaking at conferences and I would wait at the conference and I would say, hey, would you like a ride to the airport? You know, I'm a you know, recent graduate of WashU and I'd really love to learn what you're uh, we're doing. And by the way, the taxis in St. Louis are run by the mafia. So uh, <laughs> if you don't take my offer, good luck to you. Um, and uh, I, I ended up doing a lot of airport rides with these pretty important people and uh, completely disappointing. Just never like I, I got these terrible answers. I got these sort of platitude answers, which really disappointed me because I thought these people, they're so successful. How can they be so successful and not know? And the answer was, well, they were successful, but they were copying everybody else. They were just mm -hmm. good at copying. And the stuff that I was doing didn't need that solution. It needed what Herb Kelleher was doing. It needed the entrepreneur's solution. It needed somebody to sit there and go, wow, that's a bunch of garbage. You're in this other world and you need to start behaving like you're in this other world because it's different over here. You don't have to do these things, but you do have to do this other stuff. I love that. It resonates a lot. I, when I started to, um, I started to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a few years ago. You know, I, we had very, very, we had a very, very famous coach, um, world champion and private classes are very expensive. So I would always stay after class, see if I could catch him for one or two minutes to get like a, a solution to, to a problem that I would have during class. And I resonate a lot with, uh, with your story, you know? So, so if he doesn't want to answer a question, does he just like choke you out until you fall over <laughs> no he answered the questions he normally asks. oh that's so. i mean that's kind of an interesting thing it's like <laughs> leave me alone it just leaves you sort of passed out on the floor for 20 minutes no he answers the questions but yeah no it's a good uh it's, it's i love that story jim so it's cool. really been a pleasure to have you on the show, Jim. Uh, I've learned a lot, I, and I'm sure our audience learned a lot. For those that are listening, check out the book of, of Jim, The Innovation Stack. Uh, it's everywhere online where you can buy a, buy a book. And uh, thank you very much, Jim. Pretty, what a pleasure, man. Thanks. A lot of gratitude for listening to Fika with Bryce. I really mean that. If you like the show, I would love if you can leave us a five-star review, whatever you're listening to your podcast. It helps us so much to get the word out there to other listeners. If you have any questions or any feedback, I would love to hear from you. I'm just a DM away on Instagram or TikTok at Freddy Van Hyun. So looking forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you so much.